Welcome to Improbable Developments. My name is Kevin Fryer. Each month I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. Welcome to Improbable Developments. My name is Kevin Fryer, and this month I am talking to David Pierce, President of Innovation and Research at Sanford Health. It'd be great if you could introduce yourself a little bit more, David, and tell us who you are. Yeah, so uh, David Pierce, and that's my title. I, I have the privilege of overseeing uh, the basic translational and clinical research programs at Sanford Health, uh, which is uh, the largest rural non-for-profit healthcare system in, in the United States. So I've been here for 10 years. I was originally recruited uh, to initiate a program in, in children's health and disease, which we uh, instantly put a focus on rare diseases uh, based on my background. And uh, over that period of time, you know, I've grown to, to have greater responsibilities as the research has grown here at Sanford. Back then, and when, when we first started out, there really wasn't much in the way of research. So this is a, a health system that has ambitions for its patients and uh, made the leap in establishing research uh, as a health system, which most health systems don't have. They typically collaborate with academic medical centers. But we established the health, uh, health research so we could impact our patients. So all of the research we have is very patient-focused, whether it's at the bench, the preclinical types of studies where we're developing uh, treatments and cures, and all the way up to the 300 or so clinical trials that we actually have across our footprint for our patients. Wow, it's a great use of the resource of having the system out there and the, the people involved. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you did before you were at Sanford Health. What brought you there? Yeah, so, well, yeah, it was, it's a wonderful journey that brought me to Sanford. Obviously, uh, you should be able to tell from my accent, I uh, not, was not born in the United States. I was, I'm actually from England, uh, and I did my PhD in biochemistry at the University of Bath more years ago than I really should care to mention. And at that point in time, uh, that was when molecular genetics was starting to take off when we were first starting to sequence and get an understanding of what this code of DNA was. So I came to the United States uh, to do a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Rochester in New York, unfortunately deceased National Academy member called uh, Fred Sherman. So uh, I learned the trade of uh, molecular genetics and during that, that uh, fellowship uh, in, in the 90s was when uh, many academics, medical centers were building new research buildings. And uh, so I was recruited as, as an assistant professor out of uh, Fred Sherman's lab to start my own research program at the University of Rochester in a, in a new research department that they had created there. And the reason that happened was is through developing my independence uh, as, a, as a postdoc, I made a discovery that was very important to a rare disease called uh, juvenile batten disease. I was studying uh, at the time degradation of proteins in the mitochondria, so the energy uh, producing portion of the cells, really just for the greater good at that point in time, and then made a discovery that made me read a little bit about something, uh, of this disease called batten disease. Uh, and I realized that the, what I was studying uh, was going to be very important to understanding the pathogenesis of that juvenile band disease. So uh, one thing led to another where I basically wrote a grant 
and that led to my independence. I think what's really seminal at that period of time is is that I need to tell you that band disease or juvenile band disease is, is a, a, you know, a terrible disease. You know, most people don't know their genetics and, you know, when you have a one in four chance of having a child with a rare disease, if both you and your partner have mutations in the same gene product, <clears throat> this is how a rare disease occurs. And if you have mutations uh, in CLN3 and your child inherits uh, mutations in CLN3, they will have juvenile Batten disease, whereby they may, the child will start to lose their vision around about age five, having been, for all intents and purposes, normal up until about age five. Over a one and a half to two year period, that child will go blind. Following that, uh, then they'll start to have all sorts of other neurological uh, issues. They'll start to stumble and fall uh, with motor defects. They'll start to have cognitive impairment. They'll uh, you know, forget who you are. Uh, they'll lose the ability to speak. And ultimately, the, these children and as adolescents end up being in a somewhat vegetative state uh, before passing away. So it's truly a devastating disease because it's obviously it's fatal. It's very slow and progressive and degenerative. Because of the onset being around about age five, it's not unusual uh, for families to have more than one child. One in four is the statistics, but obviously uh, when it comes to you know having a child, you know that doesn't necessarily play in sometimes. Um, as I was reading about that disease and realizing that uh, my research could impact understanding uh, what the basis of this disease was, because at the time it was thought that degradation of mitochondrial proteins was impaired in this disease, I became a parent for the first time myself. And it was just mind-blowing to me, uh, you know, being, you know, that young, you know, young pup, not really realizing that these sorts of diseases existed out there and that you could actually have a child that this could happen to. So I very quickly formed a bond with a number of parents who had been introduced to who had children with this, with these, this disease and really sort of set my mind uh, to doing what I could, for, you know, to treat and cure this disease. I mean, it became very personal to me. I'm very fortunate. I now have three children, all of whom are very are healthy. And I, you know, I, I'm very thankful for that. Through the years, I've formed, you know, great, great friendships with many families, the brothers and sisters of individuals that have band disease. And I can relate, but I could never truly understand what these individuals must be going through. So uh, that, that's really my background there. And my success as a researcher, you know, it, it was accelerated because very quickly we, dis, we, we disproved the idea that degradation of mitochondrial proteins was really the basis of this disease. Published a series of papers that led to more and more grants, point where I had a very large research program at the University of Rochester in New York. Uh, at the time, I think I had five NIH grants, a lab of, you know, close to 20 people. Through a series of events, uh, really it was probably about 11 years ago now, then maybe 12 years ago, Sanford Health received a very large endowment to establish research and wanted to focus on children's health. Through a series of conversations, uh, I visited here uh, a number of times and was ultimately recruited to establish the, uh, the children's research program here based on my background. At that period of time, I think it's important to recognize we did go to clinical trial, the very first clinical trial uh, for juvenile band disease. Uh, so we, you know, we were fairly confident that we had the right sort of uh, track and path to, to do truly translational research. Um, and that's really forms that really a lot of the philosophy that we have now here at Sanford with respect to things. Uh, let's make it real. Let's finish it. So, uh, so, and so as I said, so I moved my lab 
I was very humbled. Ten people from my lab and their families had elected to, to move uh, from New York to South Dakota with me, which really allowed me to hit the ground running in recruiting additional faculty and building the research infrastructure here at Sanford. And we haven't looked back. As I said, we've been here for 10 years now. Uh, many of those individuals have moved on to bigger and greater things, as they do, my, as my trainees hopefully do. And then, obviously, it moved on to other institutions or other positions here, as I still have a research presence, but obviously uh, with the responsibilities of overseeing the research program for a large health system, my lab is much smaller. And fortunately, I've managed to mentor individuals that still carry the banner and doing very good research in Batten disease. So you said a couple of minutes ago that you actually disproved the theory that you had found might have been important in Batten's disease. How did that happen? How did you disprove it? That was interesting. So, yeah, because I was a, really my, you know, if I re really focus on what my expertise at the time was, was in mitochondrial biology. And what we showed was, was when you have mutations in the, in the seal and three gene, it wasn't specific that there was a, a degradation issue. There was accumulation of undegraded proteins, which was known to happen in the disease. And that they, this was occurring in another part of the cell called the lysosome. So the theory was it wasn't being degraded appropriately in the mitochondria and then being transported to the lysosome. But we still haven't figured out the actual mechanism as to why these proteins accumulate, but it was quite clear that this functions in the lysosome rather than in the mitochondria. So it's most likely that these proteins are transported there for degradation or recycling in some way. So I, I quickly had to change from being a specialist in mitochondria to understanding the lysosome, which is a different subset of the compartment. Well, that's what makes being a scientist fun. The science will sometimes push you in directions you didn't expect to go. Exactly. That's what I, I, you know, I tell people all the time. You, know, you, 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 you do an experiment, and then when you get the results, and then it just gives you 10 more questions. And then the truth, the truth thing, of course, is, is you know, as a scientist, you have to learn to ask the right question. Yeah, it's, it's challenging, but it's also the kind of thing that keeps scientists going. It's the kind of thing we like to do. We like to, to constantly be curious. Um, you also mentioned all the families that you got involved with. Did you happen to, you must know the Van Hootens um, from Noah's Hope. Oh, I know and Jennifer, yeah. And uh, obviously, um, you know, in fact, I've got a picture of Emily Van Hooten on my phone from, from one of the last Batten disease, and actually Coco as well. I think I bought Coco a toy. I was keeping her amused at one of the evenings at uh, the Batten disease uh, family meeting. Yep. Yeah, I just met Tracy and Jennifer at uh, the Global Genes Patient Advocacy Summit that was a few weeks ago. Um, wonder, wonderful people. Yep. So, yeah, they've been uh, tremendous advocates and were very were seminal in actually uh, pushing along uh, and getting the uh, first treatment for the late infantile form of band disease, which has mutations in CLN2. So Brunura has now an approved enzyme replacement therapy for that disease. Excellent. It's good to hear good news. When, particularly in that community, I've gotten to meet a couple people with battens and seen some stories about people with battens. And, and to see progress being made is just wonderful. It, it keeps your spirits up for, for what we do. It, it does, and we're very fortunate. So Dr. Jill Weimer, who from Sanford, she did all the preclinical work, and there are now two gene therapy trials going on for two other forms of band disease, the CLN6 form 
and then the CLN3 form that I've just uh, I've just been talking about. So uh, you know, it, it's good times right now in terms of developing uh, gene therapy for these diseases. It certainly is exciting uh, as the gene therapy comes along and and people are finding other types of therapy for these diseases. It's it's great to see progress in the rare disease space, which brings me to to Sanford Health. Tell me a little bit more what you guys actually do there. And I wanted to talk about your registries and, and some of the, the services that you're providing for patients and the, the foundations that they create. And in fact, in the new year, in this current day and age of mergers, we'll be merging with another health system and becoming significantly larger to the, to the point we'll actually be the 14th largest health system in the United States. So, you know, we're steeped in patient care. We're always wanting to do the best for our patients and, and really, you know, use innovation for that. That being said, you know, you know, I can't show you a PowerPoint slide, but one of the slides that people love me to show is, is that our footprint currently is the size of Texas because we're in North and South Dakota, we're in Iowa, Nebraska, and uh, Western Minnesota. And, uh, but we have around about 2 to 2.3 million people in that footprint. Whereas Texas itself is obviously more like 26 million people. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of the population density here in, in the Northern Plains. So obviously one thing we're good at is, you know, really providing health care in a rural setting and, and uh, you know, you take advantage in leading the way of a lot of telehealth types of things. And, and that's really very helpful when you think about rare diseases because rare diseases, it's, it's, uh, you know, you have patients strewn across the United States or indeed the world, and there's very few of them. And you have to learn how do you care and how do you understand, the, you know, these individuals in, in the rare sense. So it's sort of an analogous situation to our rural system. We were a very early adopter of the electronic medical record, which has been, uh, you know, very helpful for us. You know, we're an epic shop and have, uh, you know, 12 years of uh, electronic health records on, on our patients, which just really helps us define uh, care management, but also in terms of the appropriate way of how do we move forwards as artificial intelligence is actually being developed so we can actually be much more predictive in, uh, you know, in, in diagnosing disease or maladies. Obviously, prevention is better than, uh, than actually cure if we can, if you think about uh, specific diseases. So, you know, one, one, you know, system that, as you mentioned, is, is this registry that we have. So when we first arrived here at Sanford, having just gone to clinical trial for a rare disease such as band disease, we recognized that we got there not just because of the science that we did at the benches, but because we established, first of all, a contact registry, but then that, that contact registry for the individuals with the, rare, with the rare form of band disease allowed us to put together a natural history study. The families get together once a year at a, at a family conference, and we, we had a series of physicians uh, follow these children over a number of years and truly define the clinical course of the disease. So then when we were ready to do a clinical trial, we could clearly you know, uh, indicate to the FDA we knew what we were looking for in terms of slowing the progression of the disease down. I'm somewhat of an, I'm somewhat of an upbeat optimist all the time. So when I came to Sanford and it was really given free reign you know, in terms of what to develop in terms of the research that we wanted to have was, okay, well, if we want to go to clinical trial in rare diseases, we need to be able to put these registries together. So we established a program called CORDS, or the Coordination of Rare Diseases at, at Sanford. Uh, and this is really a registry-based program, which is it's primarily contact, but does develop into natural histories, where we will take any individual with a rare disease and put them into our database. And this database is is 
not it, we own the, the database, but we don't necessarily own the data because what's actually happened is we've been working with patient advocacy groups and foundations that support research in specific diseases. So we now host this registry for uh, for nearly 60 different organizations of for different rare diseases. And what we do is is that they basically have the contact registry, and then if they want to add a questionnaire whether it's patient reported outcomes or some sort of clinical questions or and or, or clinical records they can collect that and then and then have that attached to the registry so for those near 60 organizations they essentially have the the foundation uh, of a natural history study for those diseases and each of those registries belongs to the patient advocacy group we just host it for them Obviously, when people come and find us, then if they want to have access to that for research, you know, they want to contact the patients or if they want to collect samples or even better, if they think they have a clinical trial, then uh, we have a, a scientific advisory board meeting, bring in the people who own the actual their data, the uh, patient advocacy group, have a quick discussion with those requesting access to it. And the patient advocacy group decides whether, whether you know, that data can be shared with the researchers or clinicians who have made that request. So it's really it's like a free service, something that, you know, I'm very passionate about because, you know, if you're going to have a clinical intervention, you really need to have clinical data. The FDA is very receptive to the fact that many of these diseases have horrible outcomes and realize that, but you still have to have at least some minimal information on, on the progression or the natural history of these rare diseases. Wow. So you said a, a number of things there, and I want to unpack it a little. One thing you said very quickly, and I want to give you the chance to emphasize it is, this is a free service that you're providing to rare disease communities. Correct. Yeah. If we're approached by any group, we will host this for free. And any individuals can sign up and, and uh, you know, tag themselves to specific disease groups, or obviously, as you know, as if they know their disease, or even if they're undiagnosed, they're in the database that can be accessed ultimately uh, by others. Wow, that's fantastic. Because I think that I haven't been in this situation, but parents or or patients who are faced with this diagnosis suddenly say, well, there's no one else out there like me. Um, how are they going to know how this disease progresses? Where does that data come from? And what do you mean set up a database and contact database and I don't even know what you mean by natural history. How am I going to do that? And you guys are providing that service. I wouldn't say turnkey, but but there's an open door at least for people to come in and, and get the process started. Exactly. I mean, and you, you said it very well. I mean, if you're di diagnosed or if your child is diagnosed with a rare disease, you want information. This is one way it's, you know, where you can, you know, become part of a community uh, that will help you with that. And the, and the way we've you know, built cause is, is if you're a patient or if you're a physician or if you're a researcher or even a genetic counselor, you're looking for different pieces of information and that. So this is an all, all, all comers type of database. You can extract what you need uh, and learn what you need from it. Natural history studies are something that, that are so critically important in rare disease. And I, I want to spend a little bit of time on that to, to talk about why. And I have a story. I was working on a drug for familial amyloid polyneuropathy. And I was working at Pfizer at the time. And the company that we had acquired that had the uh, potential drug for it, it's actually an approved drug now for another indication, um, had a registry. And they kept it rather within the company. It was just people who were signed up with us. 
what we did not get out of that was a natural history. And that's what we needed to show the FDA that we had reduced the progress that people would normally see with the disease, uh, reduced the progression of the disease. And so I learned very, very right at the front line that without that natural history study, you're kind of lost. Um, so what is the, what are the, what's the value of the natural history? What does it now allow you to do in clinical research? Yeah, I think there's a number of things, you know, and I'll just say learning from my experiences. You know, first of all, you learn uh, by, you know, studying the individuals, you know, and studying the natural history, you learn more exquisite detail about the, the symptomology of the disease, which helps you understand really probably what the basis of the disease is going to be. And it will help drive research at the clinical level, but also at the bench, because it will make you understand what you're trying to target to understand at the molecular level. And that will ultimately, you know, lead to you trying to develop therapeutic targets and therefore the therapies. From the clinical research point of view, I mean, obviously, application of a clinical trial and a treatment study is, is really the ultimate thing that you want to go for. But in the short term, again, it's really, you know, you can study the patients and understand the potential variation that occurs in, the, in diseases. You know, even if individuals have the same mutations, we still have 3.2 billion other base pairs, as well as the environmental influences that can, you know, contribute to the pathogenesis or alter the pathogenesis of the disease sometimes. And that's important because, you know, as you put a clinical trial together, you want to have a real understanding that first do no harm as well as making sure you can follow the efficacy. And if, if there is slight variations, maybe, for example, in motor deterioration, you need to understand that uh, because you still may be having a benefit on some of the other uh, aspects of a disease, but not all of the aspects of the disease. And if they're less severe in some individuals, then uh, that's okay. But you still really want to understand the efficacy of what you're trying to, to uh, you know, treat. With all this work, what, what excites you the most about it? Or what, what, what is coming that's got you excited? You know, right now, with the, 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 the approvals of gene therapy is really exciting to me. Obviously, it took many, many years, and, you know, there was some mistakes made many years ago with the first applications of gene therapy. But credit, all credit now to the individuals that have been developing gene therapy Currently, we have uh, two approvals for gene therapy, uh, one for uh, spinal muscular atrophy and uh, one for vision loss uh, with um, an inherited ophthalmologic disease. Right now, there's many clinical trials ongoing uh, using gene therapy, primarily based using an adeno-associated virus, 9, although there are others out there, many clinical trials uh, for many rare diseases. And, and I'm very optimistic that uh, these are going to be very successful on the back of the approvals for these other diseases. Personally, I think, you know, it, it was a time for me to also step up in the rare disease field. Obviously, uh, you know, I've been doing this for many years and um, I've been part of a, a consortium a number of years ago. Steve Groft, the then head of the Office of Rare Diseases, encouraged uh, Sanford Health or Sanford Research to join the International Research uh, Rare Disease Research Consortium, or ERDERC, which is basically a group of individuals from around the world that are all supporting research in rare diseases on the basis of let's identify some common elements that need to be researched more. And let's also maybe consider avoid duplication. You know, if we're all f focusing on the, the same thing, that's not necessarily good, but can we partner together across the globe uh, with our research? 
Um, and so this is, uh, and it's, it's a consortium that uh, meets uh, twice a year face-to-face, but also has some resources now from the European Union where we put together position papers and uh, support projects that uh, can help to find some of the needs in rare diseases. So my stepping up was I was, I, I am now the vice chair of that organization and it's the perfect time to be involved with this because I'm very passionate about the fact that these gene therapies are being advanced. And, and the next step for that is is not just the approval for the treatments for rare diseases, but also actually getting them paid for. So reimbursement, particularly in the United States, for some of these expensive treatments is uh, something that we need advocacy for from individuals like myself. Absolutely. I think that we could spend another entire episode of Improbable Developments talking about <laughs> so how do you how do you pay for gene therapies and 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 what are you getting for that? So this has been just very educational for me. Uh, I love hearing the story of how you got into this and the passion that you show. But can we learn a little bit about you, David? What do you do outside of your all your work you're doing for rare disease? So I have three children. I have a, a son who's flown the coop. He's out of college, doing an MBA right now while working for a Division One football team. And then I have twin daughters that are 16 years of age. My outside time was always coaching sports with them, but now we're down to the fact that just the one 16-year-old is she's playing uh, soccer at the high school level, so it doesn't require her dad's coaching uh, anymore. So, you know, really it's, uh, you know, I live on five acres uh, in South Dakota. It's a great place to live, so I spend a lot of time outside being an outdoors person. I don't hunt or fish, but I tend to the land, as it were. Basically, uh, you know, just hang out with the family to eat out. We like to play cards and games and things like that. One thing that takes up a lot of my time is in this business, I do travel a lot. So I, you know, I enjoy travel. So we sort of scope out the places that we can go and visit for vacations sometimes because we do like to take vacations as a family. So it's always good to go back to a place that I visited for really where I was just stuck in a hotel for a conference to go back and actually see the sites uh, with our family. Yeah, that's always fun. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, one of my favorite trips was uh, a few years ago. So Sanford received Pontifical Award for Innovation uh, from, from the, the Pope of the Vatican wow. uh, nearly four years ago now. And, uh, you know, I've become close to uh, the Monsignor who oversees the uh, science advocacy at the Vatican. And um, when I took my family there, and uh, I think about a year and a half after that actual meeting, it was, you know, just wonderful for him to take uh, my family around uh, the Basilica, you know, having really just zipped around it when I was there before because, it, you know, I was networking at a scientific meeting. So travel is really probably one of the fun things that we, we, we as a family like to do. Wow. And to get a personal tour guide like that always makes a place just a little bit more special. You hear their favorite parts of it and, and the stories that, that they've heard over the years. That's really cool. That's a really cool award to get to. Um, congratulations. So what's one thing you'd like our listeners to take away from this time together? You know, I think it's important. I've learned so much from these families with band disease and I've learned so much from the from the siblings you know the brothers and sisters who you know watch their brothers and sisters deteriorating from this disease um, and it gives strength uh, you know to to me it gives strength to everybody around them I think the thing I'd like people to sort of you know walk away with is is that you know hope can be curative sometimes just knowing that people are out there 
you know, trying their best to come up with treatments and cures and researching and are trying to come up with answers to rare diseases, uh, I think is, is important. And more importantly, that we do care very much, uh, you know, about these individuals. And, you know, we just wish that we could go faster with the research sometime. Excellent. I think I have a title for the talk now. It's Hope Can Be Curative. Um, so where can listeners go to learn more about Sanford Research and what you're doing? It's sort of interesting. Most universities generally have very poor websites. I think the Sanford Research website is pretty, uh, pretty, uh, in, you know, encompassing of most of the things that we do. Sanford Research, you know, is part of Sanford Health, and the Sanford Health website is, you know, is pretty robust as well. You know, Sanford Research is like a large department at a typical academic, you know, university. We're not huge, but we've got plenty going on. And I think if you go to this, you know, SanfordResearch.org site, you'll find uh, plenty of information. Uh, about us there. And, and then there's obviously contact pages for many of the people there as well. Once again, thank you for your time, Dave. I really enjoyed this Improbable discussion. Development. It's and brought to you by Salem to to again Consulting. Okay, Empowering Kevin, patients to pleasure. shape the future of medicine. Special thanks to sound designer Jake Tompkins, who produced this episode.